Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show in which we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. My name is Shereen Patek and I'm the managing editor of Glossy. This week's guest, co-founder and CEO of Birchbox, Katya Beauchamp. Welcome to the show, Katya. Thank you. So excited. We're very excited to have you. So I know I said fashion, luxury, and technology, but also beauty because we cover you, yeah. beauty a lot. Um, I want to talk. Uh, I want to start by talking about um, talking about your roots as a company. I think a lot of people thought of you even when you started as that sample size company. It mm-hmm. was the company that sold you little tubes of things versus big tubes of things. Um, but you've always kind of moved, tried to move away from that being the only thing you did. That has that has always been um, something I've noticed you talking about publicly, something that is very much prevalent in your brand now. Can you talk a little bit about sort of being known as this one thing when you were actually doing a lot of other things at the same time? Yeah, it's interesting because when we started Birchbox, we never set out to sell women boxes of samples as a subscription or even to be a subscription company. My co-founder and I were in business school when we saw an opportunity in the beauty industry because so many consumer-focused categories and industries and companies were shifting their focus online or seeking to disrupt the industry by being online. And we just noticed a gaping hole in beauty. There wasn't activity. There weren't people trying to disrupt the retail beauty experience using online. And we thought that was really interesting. And it was also semi-obvious why people expect to try products before they buy. So unique... Beauty is a unique category from that perspective, and people also aren't as comfortable or it isn't as prevalent to return beauty. So mm-hmm. as we're fashion, you know, it's pretty common to say this, you know, order a lot of things, return things, or order something you think you want and return it. That isn't the behavior that we as consumers feel is normal in beauty, even if it's allowed in beauty. So uh, I'm going to interrupt you for a second because that's really an interesting point. Because from the consumer perspective, absolutely spot on. People were not used to this idea of having beauty online. What about, you know, as a market? I mean, did did companies that try to get into this, I mean, what was happening sort of in the industry? Nothing. Were, were people scared? It was more that the incumbent behavior was a valuable behavior. And if you think about every industry, what is typical and normal and completely obvious to do is to go for your top consumers who love your industry, love your category. So if you think about the beauty shopping experience, the beauty retail experience, it's really geared towards a woman who loves beauty, who wants to go into a store and feel the wonder of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of products to play with. And the beauty industry did really well with that. And obviously 10 years ago, there was a big disruption moving from counters at department stores to specialty stores, where instead of being behind the counter, the consumer could go and play and touch with product. So that is the major thing that happened in beauty and it happened over 10 years ago. And in our mind, when we looked at the penetration in beauty online, that was you know less than 5% in 2010. But the most interesting thing about it for us was that while every other consumer category was experiencing explosive growth towards faster penetration online, beauty wasn't moving in 2010. It was flat? It was flat. And we thought, you know, that's really interesting. Again, it makes sense because people expect to try before they buy. And it makes sense because of the way the current industry works, which is 
tons of new product comes out every year, hundreds of thousands of SKUs. You might read about them online. You might get reviews online. But in order to decide whether you want it, whether it works for you, you have to go in store to buy. Mm-hmm. And we all know that the you know, conversion rate when someone goes in store is very high. It's many multiples of what it is online. So it's a valuable behavior for the industry. But for my co-founder and I, what we saw was this feels like a lot of friction to buy beauty. And for the, for us as consumers who were not obsessed with beauty, we just honestly felt it was too hard. And we thought, how do we create a company that removes the friction in shopping mm-hmm. and capitalizes on what is happening, which is people are shifting their time and money on the internet. Mm-hmm. And we were lucky because you know, we had real world experience that served as a great inspiration for the product, which was Haley's best friend, who was a beauty editor. So Haley had this kind of magical shopping experience where she didn't ever go to a store. Her friend knew her, she would go into the beauty closet and for every, you know, special gift Haley got, it was from the beauty closet chosen, you know, for her bespoke collection. Mm -hmm. She was told how to use it. So she had very high end things, but not a lot. And her, you know, very curated. And what we realized was that every woman, whether you're obsessed with beauty or not, kind of has that dream of a beauty editor best friend. So, Oh, yes. And, the, you know, the fashion closet, the beauty closet. Right. Somebody who can see it all, has all the knowledge and, you know, discerns it for you. Mm-hmm. So when we came up with the idea, we saw this hole in the market, which was no penetration in beauty online. And we had the inspiration of could we create a product or a service that felt like your beauty editor best friend Mm -hmm. and overcame what the internet was bad at in beauty, which was, it felt, you know, two-dimensional, flat, kind of perfunctory instead of a place where you can play and try and also have the magic that comes through kind of an editorial or a great store associate that helps you. And that led us to the business model, which involved a personalized subscription of samples that was paired with content so we could tell you how to use the product or why, you know, this ingredient is something you should care about that was paired with shopping. Mm -hmm. And in our mind, the idea of having one company that did the trial, the learning, and the purchase removed the friction of, you know, you read about it, then you go to the store, then you might like see an ad, then you might, you know, have to go back to the store and All of these things that we thought just, again, drop off, drop off, drop off, friction, friction. And that was our idea. And frankly, you know, we were really lucky because we had really great timing and the consumer was ready for our idea, even though many people were really skeptical because in 2010, the biggest feedback we received was that consumers do not pay for samples Mm -hmm. and that's just not going to happen. So... uh you were, I mean, you talked earlier about how people, you know, on the consumer side, they were afraid to necessarily buy beauty or pay for, um, or try beauty online. You, well, then what was it like going out there and telling investors or telling even the market, hey, I have this idea and it basically goes against everything you supposedly think you know about beauty. I mean, doesn't that kind of just went, oh God, what are these people talking about? Well, we were really, again, it was good timing because we were in business school. So we were students. And when we went out, we were you know, basically six months away from graduating. We said, we have this idea that is going to change the beauty industry forever. And everybody loves those words. And everybody... And did people just look at you like, okay. Yes, there was a lot of skepticism. But Haley and I had thought through a lot of the questions that were going to come. And I think that we did 
get credit for the fact that when questions were thrown our way, we had thought about a response. And when we hadn't had, you know, that specific question conceived of in our minds, we were open to thinking about it. We'd come back with an answer. What were some of the questions you got that you just thought, I mean, you might've had an answer to, but you were like, really, you're asking me this? Because again, a lot of education about this was lacking at that time. It's really, I mean, it was every aspect of the business model. Why would people, you know, want to buy a box of samples online? What does it have to do with their intent to buy, you know, purchase the full-size product afterwards? And here's something that really worked in our favor. In the beauty industry, sampling was already a prevalent behavior. If you think about where marketing dollars are spent in beauty, billions of them are spent to create miniatures that are dispersed as a gift with purchase at a point of sale. So one thing that we had going in our favor is that this product existed and this behavior of spending marketing dollars, I'll call them, on sampling was there. Now, what we had to do was show the brand presidents, CFOs, CEOs, why instead of using a sample as a gift for a loyal customer, a sample could be an asset for customer acquisition. Mm -hmm. And that is what was, that was our pitch, Mm -hmm. was let us show you a new way to deploy a sample. And oh, by the way, the way you're currently deploying a sample doesn't sound all that efficient to us because you are doing it at a point of sale. You're not customizing the experience for her at all. It goes into the bag. And one data point that they gave us back that we used in our favor in a lot of meetings was that they estimated 90% of the samples that they created and gave away never were opened. What happened? They just languished? They, they sat at the bottom of your purse. Yeah. Do you have some samples? Oh, that you? Yeah. I have <laughs> a lot of samples. Um, so that in our mind, we said, okay, well, that's because the consumer isn't valuing the sample. Well, it wasn't considered, it was considered the, the, freebie. the freebie. It was the throwaway gift. So and, now yeah. turn it on its head and tell the customer it's personalized. We've thought about you, who you are, what you need, and you're paying for it. Was there, a, and this is something I've always wondered, was there sort of this like... It feels like in the last few years, there's this move towards miniature everything. Like people love travel size. People love that. I mean, was there something in the customer mindset at that point that you were sort of lucky enough also to tap from like a, from more, from less of a, okay, we'll use this marketing dollar to more that people really like, people were liking smaller things. People didn't want full size. People was like this woman on the go, you know, this changing customer. Did that have anything to do with it? I don't know if I think that's a totally new behavior because the industry already found the squeal factor of samples. You know, a woman was given presented samples after a purchase and you're like, ooh, the mini, you know, it's so fun. It's so delightful. And I do agree with you that miniatures are considered a really fun thing. I'm not sure if we had tapped into something bigger that was happening, but it was certainly in our minds. So we would put in our marketing materials. If you love this, keep it in your gem bag, put it in your purse, save it for travel, and then purchase the full size so that you have the miniature. So a lot of this, as you said, is a squeal factor. It's a lot of it's me nodding, you know, nodding along with you because as a woman, I appreciate and understand that feeling. So I'm able to understand that. Um, what was that like pitching to male investors or male brand CFOs or CMOs <laughs> who are sitting there going, I have no idea what you're talking about? Well, I mean, the male brand presidents and all of those people definitely understand the power of beauty. Beauty is a really emotional category and it has allowed a really fantastic industry to remain extremely strong to be beauty is still the fastest growing mature industry in the world. It doesn't have the same dynamics of discounting, um, excellent margins and customers are really aware and understand what's happening, but love the magic of the industry. So I don't think it's lost on anybody inside the industry, how magical product can make women feel. 
Um, but pitching to investors where beauty is in a category typically venture backed yeah. was very, and very challenging. And especially that time when, as you said, there was nobody out there changing the way beauty was sold and marketed. Yes, but there were examples in the 90s. So there were e-commerce, you know, when everything went online in the 90s, there were large beauty exits that did happen then, um, but they didn't have you know, it, it had been a 10-year gap and those companies actually do not exist anymore and they didn't exist at the time. So there wasn't a lot of knowledge about what the opportunity was. And, you know, what it took was us going from telling this narrative, the story of the consumer where an investor couldn't really relate to that to just really focusing on the market fundamentals. We had to be much less about beauty editor, best friend, the way you can make a woman feel, the power of becoming a customer's like trusted go-to to this is the fastest growing mature category. It inevitably will be online. We are going to overcome why it hasn't been online and be able to become a large beauty e-commerce company in a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. Is it hard to be a female founder in fashion, in beauty, in, again, traditionally female categories? Harder than a male? I'm not sure because I'm only a woman, so I don't know what it's like to be a man. Um, but, but you've spoken to founders, I'm sure, in the last most six women, years. Most people who mm -hmm. found these companies are women, mm -hmm. you know, so I don't know if there's a lot of examples on the other side. I'd say... I'd say I imagine so. I think it'd be easier to pitch an idea on much more of the empirical evidence of this is a category, this is an opportunity, if you were speaking to somebody who you could relate to. Mm -hmm. And it didn't feel as emotional as it might coming from me, where I am really excited. I do think that it's magical. Our relationships with the customer are the most magical asset at Birchbox. Mm -hmm. That is something that I can't really express without seeming overly emotional and not pragmatic about you know, this is a $500 billion category. This is how much we can get in the next five years, in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And you've had, because, you know, the reason I ask is you've had a lot of very well-known female founders kind of talk recently about, you know, the early days when they were going out there pitching things and it was like when, you know, Sarai Darabi said people thought they were on a date once or people have just sat there being like, I don't understand this and not because of any other reason, but that I can't understand that magic. Because so much of yeah. this was based on magic. I'll be honest with you that I didn't think about about the friction or the nose in the early days as being related to being a woman, I think I woke up to that reality years into the business. Mm -hmm. Because when you're coming out of business school and everything has gone in your favor, and I graduated from Vassar where women are in charge and HBS, I mean, women are very powerful and loud voices in the room. I didn't come out thinking this is going to be any different for me. Um, so when it was happening, I wasn't in any way in that mindset. Only later in recognizing how profound what we have done in the industry is and how light it's still viewed by many investors that I realized, wow, it's really hard for them to relate to, you know, this category because it does feel so personal, so emotional, so maybe uncertain to them. And in, right. in a lot of cases, men would tell us, well, my wife isn't really into that, you know, <laughs> and we would say, Real, I mean, are you, are you sure? Go look in your go bathroom, in you know, <laughs> because even women who say that they don't love beauty, they still consume so much. And actually, the the customer for Birchbox is the most unlikely beauty consumer. And we didn't realize it, but it makes a ton of sense given who Haley and I were as co-founders. We were not beauty obsessed. And, you know, years into the business, when we looked and said, who is the Birchbox customer? That was probably one of the most profound moments for the company was when we realized we weren't building a beauty retailer for 
like everybody else that focused on this hyper consumption, we actually were uniquely able to captivate a woman who wasn't that interested in beauty. You weren't actually going for the beauty Instagrammers who, you know, obviously, and they're an important part of the beauty industry, but they're not, they're not the majority. I mean, we of course attract everybody, but the vast majority of our customers are beauty average. I call them like beauty normal. (laughs) Um, And they're not obsessed. But in my opinion, in all of our opinion at Birchbox, we still think you deserve the best. So just because you're not obsessed, just because I'm not obsessed, doesn't mean that your dollar should be deployed inefficiently. You don't want to spend hours doing the research. Why shouldn't you still have the best moisturizer for you or know that you should invest in your hair because it might dry out earlier? So we really woke up to this opportunity of competing with non-consumption. And it almost just changed our, it didn't change the company. We didn't pivot, but it changed our whole mentality. We were like, oh my gosh, this isn't just about taking other people's consumers. This is about a woman who's felt outside of this category, who's felt like an outsider, has never really been obsessed over or appreciated by the industry. And giving her a home in beauty, in our opinion, is the most massive opportunity out there. Because if you think about the number of women, it is the majority. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I know this wasn't a pivot because you were always selling full size. Mm-hmm. You always had this part of it, but you were sort of ended up being known, at least in the early days, as the subscription box, of the course. sample people, the, and then there were, you know, and then the, and you know, press plays such a large part in sort of any company, yeah. especially any relatively young company's kind of trajectory. And then suddenly everything came out saying, oh wait, subscription box bubble. Everything's, <laughs> you know, consumers are running away. Consumers don't want this. There's too many subscription boxes. The other day I saw a dirt of the month subscription box, you know. <laughs> you could find subscription boxes for everything. Um, unlike beauty, which it sort of made sense for as this like tactile product you actually needed to try. What happened internally when you sort of, you know, started seeing that happen? You already had this business there about, okay, we're going to also obviously sell full size. We want to convert people there. Um, Was there a shift internally? Was there kind of an awakening saying, hang on, we need to prioritize or shift our focus? I'd say that, you know, we always said Birchbox was an e-commerce company with a subscription acquisition model. Um, And that's how we thought of ourselves. However, you know, like every person and every company, our greatest strength was also the company's Achilles heel. We were able to get so much traction on the subscription product. It was far beyond our expectations. We we hit our five-year number in seven months. And we, of course, put so many resources towards just making sure that could scale because we didn't anticipate the volume and the scale that would need to be there so quickly. So I'd say we recognized that the subscription was taking a great deal of our time, but we also saw in the data that the best customer for Birchbox and what was driving profitability for the company was customers who understood the full value proposition. Mm -hmm. From a marketing perspective, it was really hard to tell the universe, hey, you know this thing that's really fun? It's actually really deep. You know, like it's not just a present, it's personalized. We're constantly tweaking this algorithm and learning about you and using data science and machine learning to make the personalization better and actually make merchandising easier so we can source the right product for you. And then, you know, so telling that story, and that was just the box was really hard, getting people to understand that. And then on Mm -hmm. top of that saying, and you know what? The purpose of this is not to replace consumption. It's actually to make your consumption higher quality for you. So you could get rid of the stuff you don't like in the box and double down when you love it. How did you do that? 
I mean, I'd say we're still working on it because to your point, press and from a marketing perspective, it's so much easier well, the to box say. box had become the, the sort of the symbol. A yeah. Way. I mean, I, I remember walking into your offices, I think maybe it was like two years ago and you know, there were bo- the boxes were everywhere. This is beautiful. Somebody handed me yeah. one and I was like, look at this adorable thing. And it was really part of who you were it as a company. Is part. It, it is part. 100% part of who we are. You know, what we focused on because we've tried everything. We've tried to tell you more, you know, when you're getting acquired or when we're doing the interviews and, and business press is actually a great place for us to tell the full story. Um, but consumer press can be a lot more simple. You know, it's $10 subscribe now. So what we do is we rely on our best customers to recruit in people that, and they can tell their own stories, Mm -hmm. right? That is the thing that has worked most. We've created some content with them to use as content for acquisition, but we also just rely on having a great referral program so that our top customers can bring people in like them. And that's, I mean, execution is what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Make the personalization better, communicate more clearly. But as we build our relationship with you, try to layer on the depth instead of in the very beginning trying to tell you in one fell swoop how deep we are. Okay, so give me an example of, you know, the the ideal Birchbox customer, by which I mean somebody who actually ends up converting yeah. and going through that. Um, what would that step ideally look like? What is your What is your dream here? I mean, obviously, the earlier you convert, the better it is because it changes your perception of the company. So if we can get you in the door and in the first two boxes, get you to purchase something, Mm -hmm. that's really valuable because now you go from seeing us as this really fun, delightful service to something that has both fun, delight, and efficacy. And the person would stay as a subscription customer as well. It's actually really interesting. The mm-hmm. sooner you convert or that when you convert, you're much more likely to stay forever because it's that intersection of delight and efficacy that really is valuable to the consumer. You're having fun. You get it. You're willing to get rid of the samples you don't like, give them away, throw them away, but you see the purpose. Instead of having to do the work or use the same products for a decade, you're actually upgrading your routine. You're learning about things, but it's at this nice cadence instead of kind of going and drinking from a fire hose when you walk into a store and someone's like, can I get you this? Can I get the the thing that I find most paralyzing walk into a store. That's a beauty store with a hundred thousand skews on the floor. And someone says, can I help you? And I am like, oh my gosh, that's an impossible question. Can you? I don't know what's wrong with me right now. Honestly, there's so many. I find that funny because there's so many answers. I think every woman has her like go-to answer. You know, mine is just looking. Mm. It's like, what am I looking for? Just looking. Why did for I what? walk in then? Let if me I know if I can help. And you're, it's this whole dance. And then of course, when you do need help and you're like, somebody break down what a serum is. Why do I spend a thousand dollars or 40? Mm-hmm. And the person looks at you vacantly being like, well, because that is the beautiful brand. Mm-hmm. Right. It makes no sense. sense. And you you have to kind of navigate this world either through and and what I describe as getting your Ph.D. in beauty so that you can actually buy things or you can subscribe to Birchbox and our merchants are vetting things. We know who you are and we're we're informing you, but it doesn't feel like you have to go to school. Mm -hmm. You're having fun. You're playing. And it's not like you don't know where to start, what fixture to go to, what brand to go to. Are most of your customers millennials? Do they fall under The vast majority are millennials, but we do have every, you know, Mm -hmm. age. The different selling to, I mean, are you selling sort of, 
you know, talk, speaking of personalization, I mean, are you sort of tailoring those messages? What, what appeals differently to, you know, maybe an older <laughs> woman than maybe somebody who's 26? And That's a great question. I think, I don't think we do everything perfectly there, but I think what we've focused on instead of a demo is a psychographic and really just trying to say like, this never changes this mentality of believing that you deserve to have a great time and also an effective and efficient time when you buy something. You deserve that. This is for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're somebody who hasn't found joy and love discovering and shopping for beauty, you know, we are for you. We want this to be something great. I think we're really lucky because we have the honor of getting really young people who are just starting in their beauty, you know, lives and Birchbox becomes something that they think about and know about, which is a privilege. But we also have full generational households and we get emails about all the time, granddaughter, mother, grandmother, all get birch boxes, all get different things, Mm -hmm. all FaceTime or Skype that day that their box arrives, talk about what they're doing. So I do think it's much more of a psychographic than a demographic and we don't tailor a different message you know, depending on how old you are. Yeah. And personalization is an interesting thing, kind of, you know, stepping outside of Birchbox for a second, but sort of looking at the industry as a whole, Mm -hmm. you've seen sort of a lot of newer beauty companies, the Glossiers of the world. Everyone's coming up with ways to figure out how do you use your customers as focus groups? What do you learn from them? It's an interesting trend and it feels like something that, you know, would have, would have not worked before Instagram and social media and all that. What has that been like for you? Is that, can that sometimes be too much data and you're like, oh God, I now I have too much to deal with, but I also have my own thoughts. And It's interesting. I mean, I, I do think that we're at a time when we're being, you know, so reactive and so empathetic to customers and it's a wonderful time. I feel really excited to be, frankly, a consumer at a time when finally consumers are really winning all the time. There's so much fragmentation. There's so much competition. There's so many choices that you really do get, just keep seeing people elevate to get your attention and to earn your patronage, which I love. Um, I think as a business owner, it's really challenging and a rewarding experience because the world has changed so quickly. I mean, from the earliest days, talking to consumers all the time on the phone to now I still, you know, do that sometimes, but getting, you know, personal messages on all of the different ways that I can about their feedback, positive and negative. There's so much micro data and you have to be really careful to make sure that it doesn't completely distort you because when someone's either very emotional, positive or negative, you can want to run with it. Well, it's, like, it's, it's like online comments. You, you, if you let every single one kind of, especially as a business owner, it's yeah. when you create something. I mean, you can see how quickly things change and they are emotional responses. It's so, it's so magical to have that connection. It's something that I think we have really embraced at Birchbox. So that from the earliest days, our first hire was an editor and her job was to be prevalent and social. And she built a team that made sure that Birchbox didn't just feel like this corporate entity, but felt like a human because... We are filled with humans that care about how you're feeling. And it's, I think it's allowed us to feel really brave about the brave new world of customer access and feel like this is a huge asset, not something to be afraid of, but you have to be careful. So we do a lot of focus groups. We, you know, mine the data of the week that's come through in more informally. And then we look at the more scaled empirical data to try to overlap and say, okay, is there a trend? What should we be focused on based on micro data and big data? Right. If you will. Oh, oh God. The, the <laughs> glossy bingo just went off as soon as you said big data. Um, give me an example of sort of, you know, a time where you use, whether small or big, but a time you use some data and actually, you know, there's a very tangible out, 
outward change sure. in something that you did with your There's product? There's so many, so many examples, but probably the one that has been the biggest for the company is was a big decisions, a big decision we felt because Birchbox for the first you know four years had been really focused on personalization, surprise and delight. So personalized surprise and delight. You didn't know it was coming in your box, and we felt that was really critical for a few reasons. One was that our customer wasn't that obsessed with beauty, and it was a lot to ask her to kind of choose. She didn't know what was great for her from a brand, from a product perspective. And two, as we felt that it was really important that if you did have intent, you were open-minded. So if you did believe only in a few brands or, you know, in what you were doing before, we wanted to push you, inspire you to do more. So we felt like personalized surprise and delight is the answer. Mm -hmm. And we kept hearing from customers, especially ones who had been Birchbox subscribers for years, that over time they wanted more control, that they had more information, they had more knowledge, and they wanted to be able to use it in their monthly experience. So a couple years ago, we launched Sample Choice, which allows you to have some control over one or a few products in your box, or you can choose an entire featured box that our merchant team has selected and you can see everything that's inside, you know, that's more for average. Mm-hmm. Um, and it isn't that specific to hair type or skin color, but has product that are best sellers and that we're really excited about. Mm-hmm. So giving some control to customers for you know, them to use at their will. Sometimes they use it consistently month after month. And some of them just when they have that and they say, oh, I definitely want that. Mm-hmm. That is something that was a response from customers, you know, giving us that information and then also looking and doing small tests and seeing how the behavior mm-hmm. of customers looked after that. Were they, you know, behaving in a valuable way to us and to our brand partners? And the answer was absolutely yes. Um, let's talk about your retail store. How's it going? So great. What was what surprised you <laughs> about right retail? It is right around the corner. What surprised you about retail? Kind of, you know, it's because it, I remember when it, when you guys started it, and um, it was like there was this there was this like oh my god, online retailers going to brick yeah. and mortar. Look at that. Um, like we were right all along. Right. What surprised you? Was there like was there a moment where you were just like my god, I did not think about this particular part of a retail experience? I can't even tell you all of the moments that happens in a day of having a company. Um, I'd say, you know, the complexity of being on stage every day with your customers is vast because you have the people that are the most important asset in a retailer store. And then you have obviously the goods you sell and how they're merchandised. And I'd say that as a technology company, a technology led company, digital native, we went into store really ready to think about how to build the digital experience and store. And the biggest surprise to me was that regardless of anything else, the most important thing are the people that the like, basically, I mean, to be completely ridiculous about it, like product could be in like boxes on the floor. (laughs) If the people are great and they really understand what they're doing and they really understand who our customer is and what our position in the market is, I mean, they can do incredible things. So shifting our mentality from all of the operational aspects and trying to link everything about digital to in-store to saying, you know what, we need to find the best people. We need to train them. They need to really feel and understand the Birchbox vision and the Birchbox mission. And they don't, they can't feel like the separate 
entity. They have to feel like one entity. Yeah, and it was it was something you know we discussed on a uh, on a podcast episode just about two weeks ago about how store associates in general in the industry almost need to be like retrained for digital in a way because they need to understand them the product they need to understand that a customer might come in never buy anything and then go right online back home sort of all of these new things and not feel like they're competing against oh right the online experience right. but that they're you know a it's part not like it. their commission's going away or anything like that I mean I think that's a part of a bigger conversation mm-hmm. which is that the whole retail business model is going to change because obviously what it, what it used to be where the majority of the dollars were flowing through the brick and mortar four walls for Birchbox you know as we continue to explore brick and mortar we really anticipate that the majority of dollars will continue to flow through mobile mm-hmm. and that that is the reality whether we open 50 or 100 stores you know, or not. Yeah. So. Well, that's true, but is sort of, um, but mobile still sort of lags so behind and there's just so many problems when it comes to just kind of the experience. I mean, the UX on mobile in so many cases just isn't there. The, the people are still afraid in some ways to pay on mobile. Um, is there, is there a lot that needs to be done when it comes to the mobile interface in general? I mean, we're obviously in the early days, yeah. but uh, the numbers and the trajectory, mobile is unstoppable. And yes, there will be more that is done to make it a more seamless experience when it comes to paying and, of course, when it comes to browsing, which is critical. And I think that the physical world store experience could be a great aid to mobile and take a lot, alleviate a lot of mm-hmm. the you know burden to create a magical UX in mobile. Mm-hmm. I'd say I'd be on the lookout for ever more simplicity in mobile and purchasing through text message, which is what everyone's talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Which is what UX is there when you're purchasing through text yes, messages, right? Absolutely. Just, but it's a learn, it's, it's, and it's a habit that's ingrained in you. You don't need to learn anything. Exactly. So we're almost out of time, but before I let you go, I want to hear about unpopular opinion, something you believe in that you think most people would be like, nope, I don't, I don't agree with her. Related to Virgbox? Related to anything in the beauty, fashion, luxury startup space? (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, I think that you mentioned subscription. I think e-commerce in general has had a hard few years after when we launched, we were lucky enough for e-commerce to be in favor. And now there are these questions about e-commerce and whether it's sustainable. And I, I, I just can't imagine, you know, I can't imagine that that's a question, frankly. And I also can't imagine that subscription is a questionable business model. We didn't invent subscription. You know, subscription has been a business model that's been around for a hundred years. It's not something that we did. There's always been like a wine of the month or something that you can subscribe to. But I feel really strongly that if used appropriately, subscription could be a huge asset to many companies. And furthermore, that e-commerce is, it's not a question whether e-commerce Um, pure play works it really is coming down to business owners entrepreneurs understanding the unit economics and the cost of acquisition and there are going to be and there are incredible assets that are you know going to be vast majority online um from a subscription perspective the idea that it's a bubble you know i think it's missing the point i agree with you and with consumers that not everything needs to come to you in a box miniature like <laughs> you're shrunken down clothes to see if you want the full size um but i do Just a scrap of fabric and, Imagine a, and a what drawing this would feel like on your body and a drawing right um but i do think that the 
the potential for subscription is missed because it's not as though subscription actually describes much at all. Subscription is a revenue model and there still are many different business models beneath it. There's subscription as replenishment. There's subscription as the product. So wine of the month, the actual clothes that you're getting, like it's not, you know, a marketing vehicle. It is the product. And then there's subscription as a marketing vehicle to generate a sale of a product, which is what Birchbox is. Um, But what I'd say is, you know, think about, subscription, not as, you know, whether it as an entity is relevant, it's which one of these versions of subscription could work for different businesses and what is the purpose of it? So is it utter convenience to every consumer? I call that replenishment. And in the case of Birchbox, I'd say what we are doing that is not really being understood yet is allowing for passive consumers, Mm -hmm. consumers who are not avid in a category, the beauty majority, to have to remain passive and have a heightened experience, right? So they don't have to suddenly become obsessed with beauty to now understand what a BB cream is, to know how to navigate a serum, to understand how to improve their routine. They can stay passive. Birchbox does the work for them. And at the right cadence, Mm -hmm. they're actually improving their consumption. So charges like, okay, subscription can't scale are basically irrelevant because subscription is not subscription on its own. That's like saying, I mean, that's just so general. Mm -hmm. It's not thinking in any way about what is the purpose? What is the type of subscription? um, And what are we trying to do? Like I said, we never started Birchbox to sell subscriptions of samples. Mm -hmm. And what we think about is how do we let the beauty majority love discovering and buying for beauty and a subscription model allows the cadence to work. It allows the price to feel, you know, something you can absolutely sustain for a long period of time. You don't have to spend a lot to do the discovery and it allows you to at your own pace become, you know, knowledgeable enough to feel great when you want to invest in something that you would have never invested in before. Absolutely. Katja, thanks so much for being on the Glossy Podcast. And thanks to you for listening. We're on iTunes, so please leave us a review if you like what you heard. And send me an email if you have any feedback. We'll be back next week with more.